This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 298. Even deeply held emotions are just as constructed as anything else. And if they're constructed, they can be reconstructed, which means we have the opportunity to be much more in choice about how we respond to our environment. Hello once again, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. If you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading needs to be a part of your plan. And to that end, the Read to the Lead Podcast is designed to help you narrow that reading list and bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. Successful and inspiring certainly describes today's guest. In a moment, we'll be joined by Darren J. Gold. He's author of the book, Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. And I'll ask Darren to share about questioning key fundamental myths about human behavior, taking 100% responsibility for your life, overcoming resistance and doubt, and lots more. If you happen to be enjoying this episode right around its time of release, it might mean you're doing some traveling. Of course, it's Christmas, it's New Year's, and as you travel, you might want some extra podcasts to listen to. Certainly, you can listen to plenty of episodes of Read to Lead, but another one I recommend is called Christmas Past with Brian Earle. This is a podcast I just discovered. And it's a podcast that tells the story behind your favorite holiday traditions and celebrates Christmas nostalgia. Episodes are about 10 to 15 minutes long, and Brian is a master storyteller. I recommend a recent episode called It's a Wonderful Life. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Again, the podcast is called Christmas Past with Brian Earle. I encourage you to check it out. I think you'll love it. Darren J. Gold is the managing partner of the Trium Group, where he is one of the world's leading executive coaches and advisors to CEOs and leadership teams of many of the world's most well-known organizations. Uh, Darren trained as a lawyer. He worked at McKinsey & Company, was a partner at two San Francisco investment firms, and served as the CEO of two companies. His brand new book is called Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. And I'm excited to have him here. Darren, welcome to Read to Lead. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but I do a online book club called Read to Lead University. Your book is our book of December. Oh, that's really great to hear. Thank you so much. I'm also in a mastermind group, and we've been talking about what books are we going to read in 2020. They don't know it yet, but one of them is going to be yours. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I want to start with your story, uh, which I found fascinating. Share a bit, if you would, Darren, about your upbringing and maybe even some of the, I think the word you use is programming that you received at an early age, good and, and maybe not so good. Yeah. And this has been a, a story that took me quite some time to feel really comfortable sharing. Uh, um, but it's one I, I'm certainly uh, happy to do, and I do so in my book. And it was a story of uh, you know, a boy, me, who was born into a family that was really dominated by uncertainty and volatility. My father was born in London. I was too. We moved to the San Fernando Valley part of Los Angeles when I was eight. But he was a, a World War II baby and sort of you know, literally took to the streets at a very early age, dropping out of school and mm. turned to a life of, of crime and a kind of a hustler, a street hustler. And so I grew up in that kind of family where I was surrounded by crime, uh, unfortunately, uh, addiction, particularly on the part of my mother, drug and alcohol. Mm. 
addiction. Uh, my both of my parents spent some intermittent times in in jail uh, for various things. My parents were divorced at an early age, so I grew up with my father in a one bedroom apartment. But despite all of that. I had the one constant in my life was the unconditional love of my father. Mm. And uh, it was really the thread that uh, really helped shape me and, and who I've become. Uh, but one of the early parts of my programming, and we'll get into what we mean by programming, of course, was this incredible desire to not live the life that I had been living as a child and the importance of education. And so I was obsessed with education. I was the first in my family to go to college. And uh, that obsession with education and getting ahead and achieving was a very strong part of my early programming and really dominated the first you know, 20 or 30 years of my life in many ways, leading to a lot of success personally and professionally. And as we'll get into, I found out uh, later in life uh, limited me in some pretty significant ways as well. Darren, something you said that, that I sort of uh, picked up on, and, and my wife has experienced this too, having a, a backstory that for years uh, she was afraid uh, to talk about and tell and found that once she got to the point where she felt she was comfortable or had the courage to tell that story, some pretty amazing things happened in large part in the impact of lives of other people. Have you found that to also be the case as you've shared your story? Very much the case. And I've been encouraged by, you know, some mentors uh, that I've been uh, had the privilege of uh, being surrounded by in my life to do more of that. And, you know, I found in my own experience, I imagine your listeners would agree that when you hear somebody authentically share uh, their story, it can be very powerful, uh, even if it's vulnerable, in which in many cases it is. And so I when I got to the point in my life where that was something I wanted to and was comfortable really sharing uh, a lot of things opened up for me. And the most important one you just alluded to was the the impact that it can have on other people's lives. Mm. I, I certainly found that to be the case. Well, as the book's title would indicate, Darren says that the most fundamental choice we can make in life is to master our co code. I keep wanting to say cold, Darren Gold and master your cold, but I'm trying to get, trying to get right. Uh, in a nutshell, Darren, what does this mean to master our co code? Break it down for us, if you will. Yeah, I draw a distinction early in the book between our program and our code. And I define our program as the set of safety-based subconscious rules, beliefs, and values that we construct, which are largely designed to keep us safe uh, and that automatically drive our behavior but limit our results. And then the distinction that I offer readers at the very outset is um, – this notion that we have the opportunity to rewrite and reconstruct every single part of our programming and what I call our code, which is an intentionally constructed, purposefully designed set of values, beliefs, and rules that really lead to an extraordinary life. And my assertion in the book is that there are essentially 10 lines of code that matter the most. Mm. And I devote a chapter to each of those. And it's the premise is that if we first become aware and I say this in the book that I was 40 years old when I first became aware that I had been leading a life run by a program written by a seven-year-old boy. And when we can become aware of that and then be in choice about the beliefs, values, and rules that guide us, we can move from a life that's sort of driven by our program to one that we're in control of and that we're shaping. And I think that's the difference between kind of an average life and an extraordinary life in any dimension, and in particular in leadership. Mm. Well, let's start, uh, Darren, with chapter one, where you talk about awareness as it relates to, uh, I think you call the chapter, I am the author of my life. How can we best begin to, to cultivate awareness? 
Yeah. Well, let's start out with what does that mean, right? So yeah. awareness in most fundamental sense in the, in the spirit of this book is the awareness that we have a program. And most people, myself included, for a long time, went through li- go through life um, unaware that they're being run by a set of beliefs, values, and rules that really drive their behavior automatically. And so the first step in really mastering your code is to be aware of this distinction. And for me, it was a total game changer. And the way you become aware, and which is one of the reasons really why I love your show, Jeff, is by learning and reading. Mm. And in many ways, my goal in writing this book was to offer a set of distinctions that create awareness. And I talk about distinctions in the book, and I talk about these three domains. There's the domain of what I know I know, which is very small. There's the domain of what I know I don't know, which is where most traditional learning and development happens. And then there's this huge domain of I don't know I don't know. And it's that domain that I'm really focused on. And the access to that domain, the things that I don't even know that I didn't know that I don't know, is really created by powerful distinctions. And one of them we've just offered, which is program and code. And so one of the ways to create awareness is to avail ourselves of the incredible books and wisdom out there that offer us these powerful distinctions that wake us up to things that we didn't even know we didn't know and we begin to start we start to begin to see ourselves and others in the world very differently you know, I was as I read the uh, chapter on emotions, and I'd love for you to dig into that if you would. I was I was reminded of a story that happened to me the very day I was reading this chapter. You tell a story or, or give an example of the of the person honking their horn at you. I think that's in this chapter. Yeah, uh, and just that that morning, I'd had that very thing happen where someone was rudely <laughs> honking their horn at me, and, and as I thought back to that moment, I was I was proud of myself for how far I've come and how I responded to that, which was just with indifference. But you know, twenty years ago, I would have responded to that much differently. Talk about the importance of sort of these two fundamental myths uh, related to our emotions and, and human behavior. Yeah, this is, I think this is a really important chapter because um, these myths are so deeply rooted in our culture and our conditioning. The first one is that we're emotionally hardwired. And the basic notion of that myth is that we are who we are. We're animals. And if someone acts in a certain way, we're going to react in a certain way. It's just who we are. And the car honking example is a perfect, a perfect example, right? Where somebody honks their horn and lays on their horn and I react in an angry way. Mm. Most of us believe that's just the way we're born. We're wired to, to be that way. Your example is a perfect illustration of why that myth is flawed, right? Over the course of your life, you've been more and more in choice about how you respond to the same stimulus that you encountered 20 years ago. Two totally different response, responses, which suggests and there's a whole bunch of research that supports this, that even deeply held emotions are just as constructed as anything else. And if they're constructed, they can be reconstructed, which means we have the opportunity to be much more in choice about how we respond to our environment. And that's a myth that I sort of take on and challenge and hopefully shatter in in the book. The second myth is we have this notion that the environment sort of shapes us. And, um, you know, what I see with my eyes and what I hear with my ears is the kind of input that shapes the kind of reactions or the way I act. And what we now know and, and are increasingly becoming certain of is that our body, our physiology plays an incredibly important role in what we actually even pay attention to in the first place. And so, you know, take the car honking example. Again, if you're tired, you know, sleep deprived, you haven't, you know, exercised, you haven't eaten and, uh, you encounter somebody that's quote unquote rudely honking at you, 
how you're going to react and respond will be very different than if you're well rested uh, and in optimal physiological condition because your body is sending a signal to your brain at all times and it's sending one of two unmistakable signals. Either I'm safe or I'm in danger. If your brain receives the former signal, I'm safe, you'll have access to behaving in one way and if it receives another signal driven primarily through from your body, you'll act in another way. And what this, the implications of this is that we have this body that we rarely pay attention to and we rarely utilize. And I say for leaders in particular, one of the most under leveraged assets is your physiology, your posture, mm. breathing, your facial expressions, the use of smiling that <laughs> totally transforms the way you act and lead and the effect that you have on others. You know, I tried uh, a brief exercise you discussed in the book because I thought, well, that's that can't be possible where you, you ask the reader to hold their arms up and smile and pay attention to their uh, breathing, be intentional about their breathing. I think it was. And then try to think of how is it you said try to think of uh, like a negative thought or something. Yeah, yeah. I could yeah. not do it. You were right. It's impossible to do. <laughs> it's impossible. It's, it's that example I use when I'm speaking in front of large groups and I have the entire audience with their arms raised, smiling like it's the best day of their lives. <laughs> and I ask them to think a negative thought and they can't. And that is the experience of the power of physiology. It is so powerful. And we, yet we very uh, rarely pay attention to it. So it's an important part of leading an effective life is to know we've got this body and we can use it really intentionally. At one point, I thought I'd actually cracked it. And then I realized, no, I'm not smiling anymore. That doesn't count. <laughs> I have to keep the smile going. You hinted a moment ago, I think, at which one of these three you are when you were sharing about your, your upbringing, but you talk about in chapter three, these three categories of survival strategies. Can, can you dig into that a little bit, belonging and distancing and, and controlling? Yeah, we um, respond to our environment uh, early in childhood by making declarations. These are basically like writing rules of our program. Mm. And they're declarations to keep us, us safe and to feel loved and to feel worthy. Uh, whenever we experience some traumatic event when we're children, and it can be a serious traumatic event or what I call kind of lowercase t traumatic event. Somebody teased me or bullied me. And I talk about when I came from uh, London, England to the San Fernando Valley. And I say, you know, having an accent, uh, an English accent when you're 18, that's pretty cool. When you're eight years old, not so much. Mm -hmm. And I was teased. And so in that moment of being teased, um, not only did I lose my accent, but I formed a line of my program. Not, and I didn't know I was doing this, of course, um, which is I have to be liked. I must be liked. And it became so core to who I identified with that it ceased to be a part of my program that I could see as separate. It was just who I was. Mm. And so I talk about these three survival strategies. The first one is a belonging strategy. And the need to be liked or to be included or be accepted is part of that kind of category. And that was so you. That was me, right? And it really shaped and defined who I was. The second category is a distancing strategy. And, and everybody has multiple strategies. One is usually dominant. I have a part of me that's a distancing strategy, which is the need to be uh, above it all, to be smart, uh, to be right. And the third is uh, a controlling strategy, uh, the need to win, the need to be um, in control, um, those sorts of, of fundamental beliefs that you construct about yourself. And one exercise that I offer to readers is if you really want to understand what drives you, and have more control over and being more choice over how you behave and act, um, identifying which one of these three is your primary survival strategy, honoring it, see where, where it really served you, because mine really served me. I became very likable and it served me in many ways. But then importantly, where did it limit you? And where has it, or where does it continue to limit you? And what could you do if you were to detach a little bit from this survival strategy and not cling to it as much as you did when you were seven or eight years old? 
I mean, it's really interesting because, I mean, I think so many of us, I've been guilty of this in the past. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm beyond this point now, in large part due to reading books like yours. Uh, but, but so many of us, uh, Darren, sort of blame others for our lot in life, or family, or employer, or politicians, <laughs> you know, what, what have you. And I, I guess the, the, the ultimate message uh, that you're conveying in this book, if it's not already obvious, is it's sort of messed up to think we have little control over our lives. That's kind of a messed up way of thinking about it, right? Yeah. And it's the dominant default belief that we have, uh, you know, and it's it's reinforced by our culture. This notion, I say you've got, you know, two major categories of belief, the belief about yourself and the belief about your circumstances. And in the latter category, we have this dominant default belief embedded in our culture that there's very little I can do to affect my circumstances. Mm. And again, you may not recognize it as a belief, but it's there. Right. The world happens to me. Circumstances shape me. And there's that's a very seductive place to be because it allows me to avoid responsibility yes. uh, and to blame others. You know, if there's one fundamental shift, whether you're leading an organization or leading a family or everybody's the CEO of themselves, mm. it's to confront this belief. And th- here we go again with distinctions, right? Distinctions create awareness. So first of all, there's a distinction between what I call a victim mindset, which is there's very little I can do to affect my circumstances and a responsible mindset, which is um, there's always something I can do to affect my circumstances. The, I shape my circumstances. I go so far as to say, and it's the chapter title, which is I'm 100% responsible for my life. That shift, and there's five decades of research supporting this, will be transformative. And transformative in your health, in your education, in your career, uh, in your leadership, in your finances, because it gives you the power to control your circumstances and it will give rise to totally do new and different actions that you didn't even see as being available to take operating from the from the victim mindset. I can look back on my younger years, Darren, and say with total conviction that when I grew up, my mindset, my one rule was you don't question conventional wisdom. Mm. You know, others have come before you and and laid down the tracks and your your job is to just, you know, get in line and follow along. Uh, to that, you talk about in chapter uh, seven, uh, I think you call it the power of paradigms. Uh, how, how, how do certain paradigms shape and constrain our actions and how can we better see and question existing uh, paradigms and create you know, new ones? Yeah, I tell a story uh, actually way back in chapter one of the the two fish swimming along and the older fish swims by and uh, he says to the younger fish, how's the water, boys? And the two younger fish say, what's water? (laughs) And that is a perfect metaphor for what you just described. Um, You know, growing up, we swim metaphorically in the waters of our culture and, uh, and conventional thinking. And that culture and conventional thinking Right. This is just the way things are. Create paradigms in which we operate. Those paradigms are not visible to us. Right? And I say you can't change what you can't see. And so they shape and constrain the actions we take. And one of the most important things to be really masterful and to really master your code is to begin to see that there are these paradigms that we're living in and that you can begin to question and examine them. And when you do that, whole new actions become available. I share the story when I was a CEO and I'd come into an organization that was um, in a highly regulated environment. Compliance was essential. And we were living in a paradigm where we had to be really careful in, particularly in our employee relations. And what it led to was a practice of not being very direct with people and tolerating, to use, you know, to be gentle about it, (laughs) 
you know, underperformance and we wondered why. And so it wasn't until, and I had the benefit of coming in from the outside that I was able to see the paradigm that this company was operating in. And I had the wisdom and courage to question it and to put an end to that and to replace it with a different paradigm that led to our ability to have very direct, honest and kind and early conversations with our employees and then take action when people weren't underperforming that best serve them and best serve the organization. And so this is a very important part about a important part of the book. And uh, I then, and we can get into this if we want, but the other, the other part is I think the most important paradigm is the one that you've created about yourself. Mm. And we talk about it, what's your identity? Because your identity is the paradigm that shapes what you do, who you are, and what you can be. And the questioning of that paradigm is probably the most important one. I shared a, a quote from uh, Steve Jobs recently on my Facebook page that I think speaks to this and one that I've embraced the last few years. And I'm going to try and paraphrase it, but he says essentially, and it, it speaks to your point, Darren, that everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can change it and you can influence it and you can build your own things. And he says the minute that you understand that you can poke life, that you can mold it, once you learn that, you'll never be the same again. It's totally, totally true. I love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, jumping uh, to the final stage in mastering your code, Darren says, is to discover your commitment to your calling. So how do we accomplish this? How do we discover the commitment to our calling? Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a tough question to answer. It's sort of why I left it for the last <laughs> chapter. Um, you know, I start by describing every ancient tradition has some notion of an essential calling. Like the Hindus have Dharma, right? Your essential calling, your mm -hmm. the blueprint of the soul is a, a term I love. The Greeks had entelechy. The Japanese have this incredible term called ikigai, uh, which is the intersection of what I love to do, what I do well, what the world needs and what I can get paid for, which is a, a really great framework to figure that out. But this notion that there's in, in each of us, there's a seed, uh, our essential calling. Some of us discover it very early on in life. My daughter discovered a passion for musical theater really early in life. She's now studying it and wants to go to Broadway. She was fortunate. She found it early. It took me 40 years to find out. <laughs> You know, and so what I often say is don't be in a rush and don't be too attached to figuring out. The more attached you are to figuring it out, I get a lot of questions from particularly younger people that I mentor. I got to figure out my purpose in life. Mm. And when there's that sort of attachment and striving associated with it, you won't be open enough to really notice and see it. And so the best advice I give is just to be attuned. Listen to what lights you up, but don't be in a rush to, to figure it out. It'll unfold when it's supposed to, as long as you're open and attuned to it. And um, and then I talk a little bit about then how do you cultivate it. And I will end with one thought on that is, as a parent, the thing that I learned, my most fundamental and sacred responsibility to my children was to actually be open and notice and be aware of what that was. And as soon as I could see it in their eyes, was to do everything I could to cultivate it and support it. Um, it's certainly what I've, I've done with my, my daughter. But that for me was a really powerful lesson. Hmm. I wish I'd had some of that advice 30 years ago. <laughs> Things might have turned a little differently. Uh, no regrets, though. No regrets. Exactly. Um, I do have some questions I want to ask you, Darren, not directly related to the book. However, before I do that, I, I want to make sure that uh, there isn't anything I haven't asked that you want to make sure we cover. Anything I'm missing? The only thing I'd say, and I, I alluded to it very briefly, was this notion of identity. Mm. And um, I would really encourage your listeners, if they haven't done so all, already, is to get in touch with the set of beliefs that we hold about ourselves. 
that are subconscious and they aggregate over life and they form this identity. And I say in the book, the most powerful driver of human behavior is the desire to be consistent with your identity. So if you want to take different actions and have different results in life, you have to be aware of what your identity is. And the big gift in life is that you can reconstruct that too. One of my most powerful areas of growth personally was reconstructing my identity and forming an identity that led to some pretty extraordinary things. So I I just wanted to highlight that for your listeners. Well, uh, no pressure here, but uh, after this book, uh, if you have plans for a second one, I'm not sure how you're going to top this. (laughs) (laughs) That's very kind of you. Uh, And I'll I'll be giving it a little time to even think about that, but... uh, Uh, hopefully there will be another one. Well, I know you're an avid reader. I'd, I'd love for you to, to come to the table here with a, a book or two or three that you've read over the last few years that have had a huge impact on you. Yeah, I'm going to try to go um, a little into the off the off the beaten path here for your listeners because a lot of people, I don't want to repeat books that uh, people <laughs> well aware of. One that really struck a chord for me uh, early in life. I was in high school when I read this book was uh, a book called Martin Eden by Jack London. It's a novel. Mm. And I think it will really appeal to your readers because it's the story. It's sort of semi-autobiographical, a story of um, a young man uneducated who learns to learn by avid reading. And it instilled in me very early on this notion that, you know, 99% of what we learn in life is outside of traditional institutions. We have this opportunity to just enrich our our minds and our souls through reading. So I love that book. The second was uh, The Last Lion, I have three that I'll offer, uh, and I have so many more, but uh, which was a uh, uh, the biography of uh, Winston Churchill uh, and the, the the particular years before he became prime minister when he was a backbencher in parliament, uh, written by William Manchester. It's an incredible story of a leader who had conviction and despite being ridiculed, right, that, that, that Hitler was uh, amassing an army and uh, posed a existential threat to the three, to free world. He was literally ridiculed for that notion. He stuck to his conviction, and it's an incredible, beautiful story of redemption and leadership. So uh, I, that was that shaped me uh, sort of in my college years. More recently, and it's a book that I um, ask all of the CEOs that I work with to read, is a very little-known book called um, the book's not little at all, but uh, <laughs> called The Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman, and it's a very different kind of leadership book, but it's a book uh, that describes how, you know, I'm not even going to, I'm, I'm going to just tantalize your readers <laughs> with, uh, because it's, it's too hard to describe in, uh, in 30 seconds or less. Uh, but let me just leave it to, with, with the notion that um, it has transformed the way I think about leadership and how to inspire and influence others, but mostly how to inspire and influence myself. So that, that would be the third book. Mm, well, you did good because none of those three books have ever been recommended before. So. <laughs> okay, good. Great job. Um, well, one uh, trait, one skill I believe that all leaders need to have, uh, Darren, is to effectively share their ideas uh, from the stage. Yeah. Uh, what have you learned over the years about being an effective, impactful public speaker? Yeah, I do a lot of um, you know public speaking, and um, there are two two things. I love that you've asked this question. Mm. Um, I'm going to go back to identity. A person who identifies as an extraordinary public speaker will take actions consistent with that identity. Mm. Someone who identifies as a poor public speaker will take actions consistent with that identity. <laughs> so part of my identity statement, and it's something I say every single day. It's the first thing I do in the morning, and I do it multiple times a day. Part of it says, I'm an extraordinary speaker. And I say that over and over and over again. I never miss a day because I'm wiring into my subconscious brain that I'm extraordinary at speaking. And the subconscious brain will notice that and you will act out of that identity. So I want to challenge your readers that either want to get better, they're already good, or 
believe that they're not good, to take that identity on and to wire into their subconscious mind this identity that, you know, I'm an extraordinary public speaker. I have incredible things to offer. So that's number one. The second thing is what we talked about, which is your body and your physiology. So important. What you can do to prime yourself before you go into a room, before you go onto a stage, before you start a meeting, doesn't matter the size of the audience, by using intentionally your body and posture, having an open posture. There's a great book by Amy Cuddy called Presence, which is a lot of research. She's a Harvard researcher that suggests how we use our body, particularly our posture, can change the way we show up. Your smile, you know, your facial expressions. When, I, when I'm in a room and I'm about to take the stage, I'm looking at people in the face, loving them up and smiling. It's very genuine, but it's also sending a, a, a signal to my brain that I'm in a really safe place and that allows me to be at my best. And then your breathing, just conscious focus on deep, you know, grounded breath is also another signal it's going to send to your brain like you're in a really safe place. You can be at your best. And so identity and physiology uh, are key. Well, that's some of the best public speaking advice I've ever gotten. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. Love it. Um, well, the book has been out now for, I guess, what, three months. I'd be curious to know what's ahead for you and your team. Anything coming up that you're excited about or want to want to share with us? Yeah, you know, my my firm, the Trium Group, does really extraordinary work with business leaders. And I think the thing I'm most excited about is there seems to be this confluence uh, in the world where things are just increasingly complex and uncertain and volatile. Uh, people feel overwhelmed. I'm not, not happy to, to report that, but that's the common phenomenon. And then an increasing recognition that there's more I can do as a leader to up my game. In fact, I have to, sort of the leadership imperative. And that there are, you know, expert outside resources that can be helpful. Like athletes have no problem getting coaches, right, to work on every aspect of their game. Leaders, I think, have been less inclined to do so, but I'm seeing more and more an openness, a willingness, a recognition that that's essential, that I need to treat leadership as a craft, like an elite craft that I master every single day, and I need help doing that. And so I'm excited just that that is beginning to become more and more common and that we have the privilege to play a role in uh, helping that come about. And because the change is going to happen with the people that are leading our largest organizations, our vision and mission is to change the world by changing the way business leaders think. So there's a lot of good that can come from that. Well, in a recent uh, podcast episode, I summarized what I labeled my favorite book of the year. Uh, after reading Darren's book, I couldn't help but wonder if I made that determination too soon. Oh, that's very kind. <laughs> uh, that, that is how good this book is. Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. Darren, I loved having you on the show. Thank you again so much for being here. I love being on. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. I really do feel strongly about this book. I recommend you pick it up and maybe read it over the holidays. It's less than 200 pages. I think it's definitely worth your time. A link, of course, in the show notes, which can be found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 298 for episode 298. That's where you'll also find links to the books that Darren recommended. And I encourage you to connect with Darren on Twitter. There are a link to do that in the show notes. He's at Darren J. Gold on Twitter. Again, just visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash 298. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or feedback for me and the podcast, you can write me directly. That's jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. 
gmail.com. I answer most emails within a couple of days. Oh, and don't forget to check out the podcast Christmas Past with Brian Earl. A link to that podcast is in the show notes. Well, that should do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast and the last episode of 2019. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Oh,